That's one of those times I feel like I could just get up and give a benediction. We're good. But I can't. We're looking, we're looking at Genesis chapter 12 this morning. This is uh, part four of about a 14 or 15 part series on race, ethnicity, and mission called, entitled Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So if you have your Bible, you can look at Genesis chapter 4. If you don't, you can just um, listen. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and Open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would um, you bring conviction where we need to be convicted. I pray that you would bring sorrow that leads to repentance. I pray that you would also bring uh, encouragement. I pray that the, the, for those in the, the congregation this morning that need to feel um, your healing touch, I pray that you would bring that as well. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things, amen and amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are on part four of the series on race, ethnicity, and mission. And up to this point, if you remember, that we started this whole thing with a vision of the future. We started at the end, and at the end, what we see at the end of the Bible is every tribe, tongue, and nation standing around the throne praising God as one big happy family. And remember I said that basically whether you, whether you fight that or facilitate it, that's where everything is headed. And so it's probably better, ultimately, to facilitate it. That's the point of this sermon series. The point of the sermon series is not to make anyone feel guilty. It's not to make anyone... It, it's to facilitate the work of God and the mission of God. And so what we're going to talk about today is where, in some sense, where missions started. And so, you know, a lot of people think, Tommy watch, man, Tommy must watch a lot of movies, you know, because I talk about movies. I really don't watch that many movies. I watch good movies a lot. In, in other words, I watch good movies over and over. And one of the best movies, at least in my opinion, um, at, at least if you like old-timey movies, is this movie called African Queen. I'm just curious, how many of you have actually seen African Queen? Oh, well, okay, about half. Um, it, it's just this great movie. It's Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, and basically, um, she's a missionary, and he's this sort of old scallywag, you know, and it's World War I, and the Germans are coming, and they have to sort of partner up to escape from the Germans and all this stuff, and the reason I bring it up this morning is because even though I think it's a great movie, and it's a great story, I mean, eventually they fall in love, right, the missionary and the scallywag, and, you know, I bring it up because it also has one of the most cringeworthy scenes in all of film history. And the cringeworthy scene is almost at the very beginning, and at the very beginning, what you see is Catherine Hepburn playing an organ. They're in this hut in Africa. They're missionaries in East Africa. She's playing an organ, and her brother, I forget his name, is wearing a suit, and he is sitting in front of a congregation of about 50 miserable natives. 
And he's trying to sing with the organ, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. And they're all just, it's, it's crickets. They don't, they're like, what is this weird guy doing? And they just look miserable. Kids are crying. Humphrey Bogart basically comes in and ruins the service for everybody. That's how it starts. And I remember the first time I watched that, I thought, oh, that's really cringeworthy. On one hand, on the other hand, what would motivate someone back in the 20s, back in the, or back in the 1900s, to, to do that, right? Catherine Hepburn in the movie and her brother were clearly very comfortable, European people. They clearly had everything going for them. Why would they give up everything and go to this, this place in Africa where they were clearly miserable? Why would they do that? Even if they're doing everything wrong, what motivated them in the first place to actually go? And let's, let's say their intentions were good and they were biblical. They went in order to bless these people, in order to bring the gospel of Jesus to them. And the question is, will they, why would they do that? And that leads to our question today is why missions, right? If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard the word missions or you've heard the word missionary. I remember I didn't grow up in church, and when I first started going to church, uh, when, when I was about 18 or 19, um, people would talk about missions, and I had no idea what they were talking about because, at the time, I was a ranger in the army. I knew what missions meant for us. They said, we're going to go on missions to all these native people, and I said, well, we go on missions to native people. It doesn't turn out well. Well, it's the exact opposite. They were talking about going to miss- on missions to bless people, to, to, to bring the gospel to people. And in the passage we look at today, that's where, where it all starts, arguably speaking. We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at God's initiative, we're going to look at God's promises, and we're going to look at God's intention. So starting with God's um, initiative. Remember up to this point, if you look at the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, everything starts out great. God creates everything. God created the heavens and the earth. That's good. He creates all the plant life. Good. Creates the animals. Good. Creates Adam and Eve. Very good. And then they sin and bring all of creation under this curse. And so from chapter 3 to 11, things just get more and more grim. Remember, God breaks in at Genesis chapter 3 and says, you know, I'm going to fix this problem. I'm going to redeem and restore all of creation. And you think, yay. In fact, Adam and Eve even thought yay because they named their first child Cain. You know what Cain means? Cain means in Hebrew something like here he is. In other words, God says, I'm going to give you a redeemer. They have a child. and they, Well, here he is. Mm. Cain didn't work out very well. In fact, Cain killed his brother Abel. And that led to Genesis chapter 5 and 6, which led to Noah and the ark, which led to God uh, flooding all of creation and judging all of creation. Last week, we looked at what happened when they got off of the ark. Right, Three brothers, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they began to spread out throughout the face of the earth after this event at the Tower of Babel. And remember the Tower of Babel, men t- tried to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be against God, and God had to come down, and he dispersed them. And so you come to this point in the book of Genesis where you think, okay, God said he was going to redeem humanity. It seems like it would be easier to redeem humanity and to redeem creation if they were all in one place and they all spoke the same language. At least that's the way I would think. And so you get to this point in Genesis where not only are people not in the same place and are not only do they speak the same language, but they speak different languages and now they've been spread throughout all the earth. What's going to happen now? How is God going to redeem things now? The way God redeems things, or the way he begins to redeem things, is God initiates with one single person. 
In other words, you think God's going to, it's a big job. He's going to, why not initiate with a ton of people? He doesn't do that. He initiates with one person named Abraham. And he does it. It's interesting when you get, when you leave the Tower of Babel story, right? You had all these sort of genealogies and then the Tower of Babel and humanity is dispersed and you think, what now? Well, then suddenly you're back into genealogy again. And remember I told you my professor Richard Pratt always said don't skip the genealogies because there's good stuff in there. Let me read you the genealogy that comes after the Tower of Babel, at least part of it. Genesis 11 verse 27 says this. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham, Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. In the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ishkah. Verse 30, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son-in-law, and the lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, and his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So... The, the genealogies come, and they start with this guy, Terah, and they begin to sort of work their way down until you get to this one guy, Abraham, or Abram. If I say Abraham or Abram, his name doesn't change to Abraham until later, but forgive me. He gets to Abram, and we learn a couple things about Abram. What do we know about Abraham? It's important, because what we know about Abraham is just this, is that he was probably wealthy, he was not Israel, Israel or Israelite. He was not Hebrew. He was not Jewish. He was a, he was a Gentile. In fact, he was a pagan. And what do I mean by that? Being a pagan is being a pagan is that he probably was an idol worshiper. We know that his father was a, a creator or a maker of idols, like as a business. And we also know that he had a wife who was a little bit older. She was seventy-five years old. Sarah is, by the way, is the only woman in the Bible whose age were given. She was set, <laughs> right. God, even Gog was treading lightly there. Um, <laughs> but we're given right. So, so, so let, let me go back and summarize this. So, who is Abraham? Abraham is basically this this wealthy, idol-worshipping pagan with a 75-year-old wife who also happens to be barren. Now, if it was you, would he be the guy you would start to renew and restore all creation with? I wouldn't. I'd probably pick, I'm like, okay, I got to renew creation. I got to, you know, spread, create a nation that's going to spread over the earth. I want the youngest, most vigorous couple I can find. He doesn't. He initiates with Abram. Now, the question is, why Abram? You ever thought about that? I mean, Abraham, Abram, is no different than any other person who, who lived at the time. There's nothing that would commend him to us as the blessing bearer to restore all of creation. Absolutely nothing. Why in the world would God initiate with Abraham? And the answer is simple. Because he decided to. He simply decided that Abraham would be the blessing of bear. God initiated with Abraham because he wanted to initiate with Abraham. There's nothing in Abraham that made God want to initiate with him. There's nothing in him that commended him to be the blessing bearer to all the world. In fact, almost everything about him commended was against him. So we, we wanna, we're going to pick someone who doesn't follow Yahweh, someone who worships idols, someone whose wife can't even have children, and we're going to say he, in him there's going to be created a nation and a land and all of these things. No, God initiates with him. 
In fact, God, God tends to initiate with people who are the most unlikely of sorts. I mean, think of Israel when God initiated with them. God was very fond of reminding Israel that he chose them not because of their goodness and not because of their size and not because of all the great things they brought to the table. Let me read you what God says in Genesis chapter or in Deuteronomy 7 about Israel. He says to Israel, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, It is not because you are more in number than, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you or chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did Israel, why did God choose Israel? Because he wanted to. It was his prerogative. But not only was it his prerogative, he tends to, it seems that if he chose them, because they would be actually the worst candidate. And that, be, that starts to make sense when you think of your own life. right? If God is going to magnify his glory, if he's going to magnify his power, would he do it in people who it wouldn't make that big a difference in their lives if he did it? Or in people who they would be trophies of grace? Abraham was a trophy of God's grace. Israel as a nation was a trophy of God's grace. You know who else are trophies of God's grace? You and I are. If you're a Christian here, if you have trusted Jesus, if you've ever thought about it, you are here not because of any goodness in you. God didn't look out upon you and say, wow, look how awesome Samuel is. I know he didn't say that. <laughs> or man, that Tommy, think about all the great things he brings to the table. I bet he doesn't have any issues at all. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He chooses to set his love upon us because he has chosen to set his love upon us. It's his prerogative. And so if you are here, if you are a Christian, if you are following Yahweh through the person of Jesus, you're doing it because of his grace and his grace alone. People get uncomfortable talking about it. Let me read you, let me make you more uncomfortable. Let me read you Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul says this about us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In other words, if we are here, if we are called we are called because of God's initiative. If your eyes are opened, it's because God has opened them. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus and says, what must I do? And Jesus said, you, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Another good translation of that is it says, you must be born from above. In other words, the Holy Spirit must come and actually enlighten you. And that's what's happening to, to Abram. Notice verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to a land that I will show you. There's no spiritual foreplay, if you will. God simply shows up and initiates with Abram. And now Abram has to decide, whoa, what am I supposed to do now? I mean, I assume these three verses didn't happen like immediately, like they, we read them. You, got, you have to wonder if Abraham sat around with the dining room table with Sarai and said, hey, you know, this, this Yahweh has called us to go leave our country, leave our family, leave our relatives, leave everything we have, and to go to some place that he will show us. 
Notice he didn't say, I'm going to take you to this great and happy land. He said, I'm going to show you. And I imagine if Sarah was like my wife is, she would have said, what else did he tell you? Remember that? You see, because God's initiative is always accompanied by his promises. And what did God, God didn't just say, go to a land I will show you. He, he immediately gave Abraham promises. That's the next point. Notice what he says. He says, now the Lord said, go from your country to your kindred, your father's house, to a land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in this first, th- these two verses, there are actually six promises. Right? He says, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So now there's a big problem here right from the beginning, because the very first promise, he says, I will make you a great nation. Now, what's the problem here? Well, the problem there is just this, is that in order to be a great nation, you need two things. You need people, and you need land. Abraham doesn't have any people, and he doesn't have any prospects. His wife is barren, and he doesn't have any land. He doesn't even know where he's going. And yet God has promised that he will do these things for him. What in the world would motivate Abraham to actually go? What would he do? I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, you know, you're crazy. Barren wife, we don't even know, we don't own anything. How are we supposed to do this? What motivated Abraham to go? And what motivated Abraham to go is the fact that this covenant that God makes with him, which is expanded in chapter 15 and chapter 17, is an unconditional covenant. In other words, there's basically two kinds of covenants in the Bible. There's conditional covenants and there are unconditional covenants. Right? A conditional covenant would be what God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? If, then. If you eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will die. If you don't eat the tree of knowledge of evil, then you will live. The Ten Commandments, right? If then, if then, if you obey the law, you will be blessed. If you disobey the law, you will be cursed. Conditional commandments tend to sound like this. They tend to sound like, you shall, you shall, you shall, you shall. What's an unconditional covenant? It's just what it sounds like. An unconditional covenant sounds like this. I will, I will, I will, I will. Did you notice God didn't say anything to Abraham about conditions? He didn't say, Abraham, if, if, if you were on your way to, to this land I will show you, and you happen to lie to Pharaoh and tell him that she's your sister, and he happens to take her into his harem and happens to sleep with her and happens to, to put the promise in jeopardy, if you do that, the deal's off. God didn't say that. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. As a side note, all the things that Babel was trying to accomplish, God just gives to Abraham. This promise is unconditional. And the promise of the gospel also is unconditional. God never comes to us and says, if you do these things, I will love you. If you do these things, I will save you. What he says is, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, the law tends to say, you shall, and the gospel tends to say, I will. And because Abraham believes, so now Abraham's at his kitchen table. Sarah has just dropped a bomb on him, all these promises, don't forget the promises of God. Then Abraham is in this position, well, if there really is a God, 
am I going to believe his promises or not? In other, and what does it mean to believe his promises? And, Genesis, and we read this morning, it was actually Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, it says that Abraham considered these promises, and then what? He believed that God was able to do what he promised he would do. And since he believed that God was able to do what he promised he would do, he stepped out. He stepped out on faith. And it, by the way, it wasn't a leap of faith, because it was, a le- it, it was faith based on the fact that he actually believed there was this God, and this God actually promised him things. And if there was a God, and he did promise him things, then at the end of the day, he couldn't lose. At the end of the day, even when it looked like things were at their worst, he knew that God was going to pull things through, and there would be a plan. And so, he made a similar deal with Israel. Remember with Israel, he said, I will deliver you from Egypt. And I will do what? Take you to the promised land. And where Israel constantly messed up is the same place we mess up. Is they didn't believe the second part of that promise. They didn't believe God was able to finish the job. They didn't believe that he was able to do what he promised he would do. And they got in trouble for it. They ended up spending 40 years in the desert because of it. Why? Because of their grumbling and complaining. Here's how one of the ways you can tell that you're really not believing the promises of God and it gets down to how much you complain. How much do you complain? How much do you grouse? How, much do, do, are you, how cynical are you? Now, by the way, I'm preaching to myself here. See, one of the ways to tell if you believe the promises of God is ba- really to look and see how, how much joy you experience, how much, how much uh, you experience basically His goodness. You know, like... You know, I said this in the, the pre-recorded video, and I was like, mm, I don't know if I should have said it. And then I thought, you know, Steve Brown, my professor, always said, when in doubt, go ahead and say it. Um, um, so I guess I'll say it again. Just as a point of practical application, if your hope and comfort in life is anything but the promises of God as they are fulfilled ultimately in the, po- the, prom- the person of Jesus. Remember, he said, Jesus says, the, in him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. If your hope and comfort is in anything less than that, at best you will be disappointed and at most you will be devastated. And there's a, there's a big movement of people I see, right? So let me, let me give you a little context. I personally and my family have been harmed by the church. That's not a complaint, that's just an objective fact, right? And in fact, any pa- you ask any pastor who's honest, and they will say, yes, we have experienced hardship at the hands of church people. We have experienced abuse at the hands of church people. Why are you still here? I remember talking to a counselor, and after telling her our story, she said, I can't believe you would even walk into a church. And I remember saying to her back, what else do I have? What else do I have? And I said, besides, my hope is not in church people. You see, a lot of bad things happen in church, and so if you've experienced bad things and you're thinking, gosh, you know, I'm going to leave church and it's bad, if your hope is in the fact that other sinners are never going to sin and are always going to treat you well, you will be disappointed. What will keep you in the game? The promises of God. You know, it, it always bothers me when I see people posting snarky things on Facebook or on Instagram about how bad the church is or how bad this and that. I've never seen anyone post, I trusted all of God's good and gracious promises and at the end of the day, he let me down. Because he won't. Especially if you, you, got, you have the long game in mind. So 
Anyhow, rant over. Let me move on. Basically, it's easy to forget God's call when it comes to his promises, right? It's easy to forget his promises, all these things. I think what's even easier to forget for Christians is God's intention. Right? That God, God initiated with Abraham, he made him promises, and he did it for a specific reason. Same thing happens with us. Notice the last part of verse 3, when he intend, what he intended when he called Abraham. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That the culmination of the call to Abraham is that all the families in the earth will be blessed. That he is not calling Abraham to be a cul-de-sac. In, in other words, he's not calling Abraham, he's calling Abraham to be a conduit of his grace to the people around him and a conduit of his grace to the nations around him, not to be a cul-de-sac. He's not saying, Abraham, I'm choosing you for no good reason just so I can pour my grace into you and so that you only can enjoy it. He says, I'm calling you, Abraham, so that you could be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Genesis 18, he expands it to say all the nations of the earth. He called uh, Israel for the same reason. Why did he call Israel? So that they would be a light to the nations. That Israel was to be in the center of the Middle East and they were to build God's temple and they were to, to worship God and they were to have the law and all the nations were to be like, wow, look at them. We need to go over and worship that God. And the, all the prophets say eventually that's what's going to happen. And so guess what that means for us? If you're a Christian, why do you imagine God saved you? Was it for you to be a... a Conduit of grace or a cul-de-sac of grace? And the answer is, is pretty simple. He called us to be conduits. In fact, we are, we are the descendants of Abraham who have these promises. Let me read to you the Apostle Paul as I finish up here. He says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith that are, who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we are Abraham's descendants. We are blessed to be a blessing. That God's people are always so that people. One of the, one of the reasons I think the church has gotten such a bad rap in modern times, in the past 10, 20, 15 years, is because we're, we've forgotten that we're supposed to be a so that people. And we've thought we just need to make sure that we have Bible studies and discipleship and all these things that churches do. And if we're not actually going out, if we're not actually being conduits of God's grace, why does it even matter at the end of the day? And so that's the question I'll leave you with. Maybe it's an invitation I'd leave you with today. Are you a conduit of God's grace or are you a cul-de-sac of grace? Does God's grace flow through you to others or do you just experience and sort of keep it right there? Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that um, as we get more and more into mission and missions, that you would open our eyes to where we need to grow, open our eyes where we need to, to maybe uh, unclog our pipes a little bit and be better conduits. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen and amen.